Well, today, as uh, has been obvious, I hope, is Trinity Sunday. It's a Sunday that I love, but I will confess to you that Trinity Sunday has always been a little daunting to me. Um, The topic is so vast that you really can't get at it in one or two or four texts. You know, and time is limited. You don't really want to add to the confusion, which is easy to do. You don't want to dishearten people about grasping the matter. It seems like you can focus on the resurrection or the ascension or the baptism of Jesus and do something pretty substantial in one sermon. But here it is much, much harder. The terrain here is almost unmappable. Every year when Trinity Sunday comes around, I feel like I'm being asked to something like preach on reality. So, I mean, it's a joy, but it's a challenge to have one Sunday a year on the Trinity. Of course, it runs the risk of making it seem as if the Trinity were something we focus on among a bunch of other things. It's just one theme among other themes. Right? We come in, we see the bulletin, we think, oh yeah, that's right, we believe in the Trinity. Right, as if you know, we can think in Trinitarian terms and categories for a while, sort of as a little reminder. Then we go back to the more muddled, you know, heavenly hodgepodge that is our normal garbled way of thinking and speaking about these things. You know, God and Jesus, Jesus and God, tattling back and forth, whatever, sort of three, sort of one, whatever. It's really complicated. But of course, the Trinity is not an aspect of anything. The Trinity is God. Not a feature of God. Not an add-on. Like an add-on for when we're feeling sophisticated. Then we can talk Trinity. It's not that. Because the Holy Trinity is not a doctrine among doctrines. We've said it before here, but I'll say it again. We, we have only one doctrine in a certain sense. And that's the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And all other things in light of the Holy Trinity. Right? God and all things in God. That's Christianity. Paul says, from him... Through him, unto him, are all things. He's the source. That's the from. He's the agent. That's the through. He's the goal. That's the unto. We're learning, right, together to see all things from God, through God, and unto God. To see all things in God, the Holy Trinity. And thus the Trinity has been called the sublime treasure of the church because God is the sublime treasure of the church. The Trinity is the supreme delight of the church and it is the destiny of the people of God. So we are Trinitarians. We are Trinitarians or we are simply not Christians. We are Trinitarians, or we are not Christians. Well, we are not theists. We are Trinitarians, 
all the way down, all the way inside, all the way outside, all the way around, all the time, in every place, in every way, in every breath, in every thought. Or at least that should be the case. Now, of course, it's true. We all fall very short here. But we fall short for two different reasons, really. The first one is this. We fall short because we're simply up against a kind of impenetrable, ineffable mystery. Something incomprehensible which is always exceeding our grasp. There is nothing, nothing, so wild and so exotic and so challenging and so rich and so illuminating and so elusive as the Christian doctrine of God. One thing the triune God is not is boring. I'm always baffled that people find Eastern forms of mysticism to be so exotic and exciting. I often think, read a little 4th century Trinitarian theology. There is no subject as interesting or as exhilarating as the one undivided being of God who exists in three mutually interpenetrating persons. I mean, you could take yourself, your family, your friends, your children, your history, your hobbies, your engagement, your nation your civilization, and every single feature of the created world and think it out of existence into black nothingness. And what is left is infinitely more interesting than everything you've just mentally obliterated. Because what is left is the triune God. That's how we should think about God. Take every single thing from every single culture, from every single century, and one by one, just think it out of existence. You're left with this God. It's exhilarating, but it is a mystery. And, you know, we're, we're aware of how limited we are as creatures in the light of this mystery. So there's no shame in this kind of falling short, right? It's just part of being a creature, trying to understand the triune creator. We find that we're always trying to like grasp the outer fringe, just the hem of his garment. It's a tragedy that the world's perception is that the Christian God is a rather bland fellow. Pretty harmless chap, not particularly complicated. He might be powerful and he might be moral, but he's not wild and exhilarating or intellectually stimulating at all. But we fall short, because indeed he is, and we're trying to grasp this mystery. Now, there's a second way to fall short. This is the more problematic one. That is to think base or low or distorted or simply erroneous thoughts about God and about what he's revealed about himself. To think about God without having things in proper proportion. Thinking about God improperly 
is sinful activity. Probably the dominant sin of the church, if you want my humble opinion. Thinking, beloved, is a verb. It's an action. And thinking this way is to be repented of, since we are to love the triune Lord with all of our minds. So it's one thing to be confused by a transcendent mystery. Right? But then there's being confused about things which have been revealed and settled and which we should not be confused about. Of course, the church has always sought to help you here. To help her children. The church is like a tender mother. The church teaches us and says, look, you can say this, but you can't say that. You can affirm this, but you're going to have to deny that. Here, paint inside these lines. That's what the creeds are for. They're they're a way of the church being like a good parent, giving a little picture to color to to the children, saying, paint inside the lines. These are the lines. And you know what else helps us here immensely? The liturgy. Because the liturgy is the greatest teacher of the old and of the young. Think about it. Weekly, we have an opening prayer which invokes the whole undivided trinity. And this is not boilerplate language. It is the essence of the Christian faith that we pray to God through Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. All the prepositions matter. He reigns with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit. If we find this boring, we should think again, because this is your life. You know that little opening prayer? That is trying to keep you and your kids from becoming heretics. It's the church saying, look, Don't try to be clever. Don't try to be innovative. Say this. Pray this way. It's trying to teach us and our children how to pray and think right about God. It starts right at the beginning. We confess our sins to the Father, seeking for Him to pardon us through Christ the Lord and to renew us in the Holy Spirit. We sing a threefold curie invoking the mercy of the triune God in Christ. Right? We sing the Gloria Patri and the Doxology, both of which are ancient Trinitarian hymns. And they both have this sort of richness, this condensed richness and simplicity and depth unmatched by many longer hymns. You could hardly beat the Gloria Patri, for rich, dense content. It's an act of sheer genius for its compactness. And then we confess the Apostles' Creeds and the Nicene Creeds, both of which are deeply structured by the Trinity. Then we preach from the Word that the Father spoke through the Son in the Spirit. And we regularly have a Trinitarian benediction. This is what it means to be Catholic with a small c. 
And it's something we cherish. It's something which embraces our lives. We do not cede this ground to the Roman church. High Trinitarian theology and liturgy is our patrimony. It just is what Christianity is. Right? We're not looking for new ways to do church, new ways to be church. So, of course, it's difficult to get a handle on all this. I understand that. And you have to start somewhere, right? You have to start somewhere. So we have Trinity Sunday. It helps us remember. It helps us refocus. And that brings me somewhat belatedly uh, to the text. This is the outer fringe of the mystery that I want to just grasp a little bit of today. And it's the gospel lesson from Matthew 28. The three points are there on the back inside of the bulletin. Exaltation, discipleship, and presence. So first, exaltation. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Now, of course, this has always been true of the triune Lord. God has always had all authority as king over heaven and earth. But what's happening here in Jesus' exaltation is an unveiling, a full revelation of the authority of the triune God, now seen as Redeemer in the Son, in the God-man. And so Jesus' exaltation allows the kingship of the triune God to shine forth. Jesus is Lord is a Trinitarian confession. I find it helpful to think like this. Think about Jesus as a sort of doorway into the Trinity. Like we can never like pull, pull off the door and just have the door. We can never isolate him or his authority from the Holy Trinity without grave distortion. So I want to unpack this just a little bit. We do not worship... We do not worship the human nature of Jesus. That would be idolatry. We worship who he is, which means we worship the person. We worship the person for what he has done in the human nature, to be sure, but we worship the person. The body of Jesus Christ is not an object of worship. The person is. And the person is the second person of the Holy Trinity. The eternal Son of God. Jesus is one person, not two. Now you can see right away, as soon as you say what I've just said, Jesus is now locked into the heart of the mystery of the Trinity. Right? Jesus constantly tells us that he has come to make us children, to reveal, to bring us to the Father. The Son, through the Spirit, brings us to the Father. So Jesus is the door or the gate into the fellowship of the triune God, always and everywhere. It's as if the the life of the Trinity, the mystery of God, is a kind of cosmic, beautiful dance, and Jesus is your dance ticket into that mystery. And never, then, does this lead us 
into a kind of Jesus-only mysticism. There are a lot of Christians, they talk about Jesus a lot, but you're not sure after you've listened for a few years whether they're Trinitarians in any meaningful way. There's a sort of Jesus mysticism. There is no me and Jesus or Jesus and me anything in Christianity. Right? Because Jesus is the second person of the eternal Godhead. There is only Jesus showing us the Father in the power of the Spirit. So to be Christ-centered is to be Trinitarian. Right? There's a kind of architecture here. It's not that complicated, but it's to be imprinted on our souls and minds. And so here in our text, Jesus says, all authority has been, notice this, given to him. Given to him by the Father in the Spirit. It was given to him by the Father. So the Son, given authority by the Father, executes that authority over heaven and earth by the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, to to just put this simply, the glory of the Holy Trinity is on display vividly in the exaltation and in the authority of the risen Christ. To be centered on the risen and exalted Christ is, or at least should be, to be fully Trinitarian. This is Trinitarian exaltation shining forth in the sun. Beware the temptation to snatch Jesus away from the Trinity and just deal with him in an isolated manner. Whatever that is, it is not Christianity. The second point here is discipleship. The main verb of this short little text, the main action, is not go, therefore. It's make disciples. Making disciples of all the nations. And we make disciples, the text says, by baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. But baptism is the basic thing, the the primitive, the first thing. Not not simply because it happens first. It's not simply because it happens at the beginning of the Christian life. It's because baptism, your baptism, stands over and it informs and it shapes the totality of your Christian experience. It's not simply that you were baptized. Paul speaks to the church with present tense verbs. You are baptized. It's not that you were baptized, though of course you were. It's that you are. And so this reality that's sealed to you, that's branded on your soul in baptism, is nothing less than the the reality of the Christian existence. It's death and resurrection and ascension with Jesus Christ, in union with him. Right? It's because of this that Paul says things to the churches like, look, you're baptized. You cannot have these divisions. Look, you're baptized. You cannot live in sin. So living as baptized people is simply shorthand for living the Christian life. And then all the teaching we do in the text takes place in this context, sort of under the banner of baptismal union with Christ. Teaching, all the teaching that the church does is fleshing out Baptism. 
Every single thing the church says about Christians and their Christian life is fleshing out their baptism. Now, notice carefully, we are baptized into, placed into, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All teaching in the church is Trinitarian teaching unpacking and unfolding this mystery. We are placed, you are placed, inserted into the very mystery of the Trinitarian life of God himself. That is what baptism does. And that is the very heart of making disciples. You may not know this if you read a lot of discipleship literature, but the heart of discipleship is the insertion of people into the life of the Holy Trinity. Notice this formula carefully. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name. Singular. Not baptizing them into the names, plural, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but into the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Name here means the divine nature. It's a way of speaking of the being the divinity of God, the godness of God. The three persons share the same identical nature. They are one in name. And thus you are baptized or clothed or placed into the singular divine name, the divine nature. And yet, that singular divine name is the name or the life of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the whole mystery right there. Often it is said that the stuff on the Trinity came way after the apostles. The church in the 3rd and 4th century created this complicated philosophical doctrine of God, but the primitive early church didn't really believe in this Trinitarian stuff. Well, here it is right here in Matthew's Gospel. This oneness is somehow ineffably threefold, and the threeness is nevertheless one name. One Lord and God. The great um, Eastern Church father from the fourth century, Gregory of Nazianzus, has a famous saying where he says, You know, I cannot but start with the persons. When I start with the persons, I'm drawn back to the radiance of the one. When I start with the one, I'm drawn out into the radiance of the three. I'm caught up in this circle. There's no way I can prioritize one over the other, put one before the other. I have to start somewhere I'm a creature. But if I start with the threeness, I'm driven to the oneness. If I start with the oneness, I'm driven to the threeness. That's a man caught up into this mystery. So what I want you to see is you got one name, you have three persons. And exploring this mystery, which I'm not doing, actually, and I don't intend to do here, but exploring that mystery is what we shall do for all eternity. Think about that. Exploring this mystery is what we shall do for all eternity. That should shape us now. But what I want us to see here is this. The mystery of the Trinity seen in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, leads us into this commission. And the heart of that commission is placing people into the same Trinitarian mystery by means of Trinitarian baptism. So, 
baptism by this formula into this threefold name, by this formula into this name, it makes communion with the Holy Trinity the beginning and the middle and the end of the Christian life. Right? It's not like you get a little Trinitarian Kickstarter package and then you move on to the other Christian stuff. Right? This baptism into this name makes communion with the Holy Trinity the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. And this is our commission. This is what you are called to do. Not just make generic converts... Right? Not, just, not just make generic Christians. We're not looking to create basic monotheists or believers in God in general or mere believers or simple followers of Jesus. We are making full-blooded Trinitarians. It's hard to do if we're not full-blooded Trinitarians. Right? The calling here is for you to be a full-blooded Trinitarian and then to make full-blooded Trinitarians or we are not properly even engaged in the Great Commission. Trinitarian exaltation leads to Trinitarian discipleship. Finally, Trinitarian presence. Here I want to talk about the beginning and the end of the text. First, Jesus gives the command, go. And then at the end, he makes this promise. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. We go because Jesus, the, the exalted son, together with the father, sends the spirit. That Pentecostal descent, which we looked at a little bit last week, that thrusts the church out into the world. When the Spirit descends, Jesus the Son comes to dwell in us. Right? The New Testament ins- you know, constantly insists that to have the Spirit is to have the Son and vice versa. And Jesus goes on to tell us in John 14, this means also that the Father dwells in Remember, he says, uh, my father will love them and we will come and make our home with them. So when we think of Jesus saying, you know, go, my presence will be with you to the end of the age. Right. To have the spirit empower us is not just to have heavenly aid or an impersonal force. Like we need some sort of force so we can get on with the real business. This is to have communion. Interior, intimate communion with all three persons of the Godhead distinctly. The great 17th century uh, English Puritan theologian John Owen has a book title basically to this effect. You know, communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each person distinctly. That's a good diagnostic test, right, for us, our souls, as to whether we are Trinitarians or just something else. It's a probing test, is it not, if you were to say, do I, have like, do I have a threefold kind of relationship with God? Is my relationship with the Father different than my relationship with the Son, different than my relationship with the Spirit? Do I relate to God as three distinct persons in one God? Or is it just, you know, there's God and he's up there? This is, this is I think, a probing thing. So, the Spirit dwells in you. The Son dwells in you. And the Father dwells in you. You are a dwelling place, a temple of the triune God. Now, I don't want to discourage anyone, so I want to, let me just maybe make a, a, a general remark here that I hope helps. Um, let's say you're sitting there thinking, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. 
you know, I've had people say this to me. They've said, oh, I don't want to deal with all this Trinity stuff. I just want to talk to God. You know, it's too complicated, all these distinctions. And I understand that. It is. Here's the beauty, though. You are already embraced in this, even if you don't understand. There's, there's simply no other God for you to deal with. Right? You are a temple of the Holy Trinity, even if you never thought about it all week or all year. So the glory of God's grace is he's embracing you, and he's loving you, and he's teaching you, and he's discipling you, and he's underneath you and around you as the holy triune God. What a sermon like this is, is to help you do is to say, okay, now bend your mind and, and go with the grain of the universe. Go with the grain of God's action towards you, right? So that's how you should think about this. Like, oh, this is a bunch of complicated stuff. I don't want to have to worry about it. You should say, no, th- this stuff is how God deals with us. So I'd like to think about how God deals with us in a way that accords with how God deals with us. But the beautiful thing is whether you like it or not, whether you use the phrase or not, if you're baptized, you're Trinitarian. So I don't want anyone to be disheartened and think, oh, this is a bunch of hard intellectual stuff and I can't grasp it. We want to try and grasp it simply because we want to sort of think God's thoughts after him. So why do we go? Go therefore, right? We go because the triune Lord, seen in Christ's exalted authority over heaven and earth, descends in triune fullness to empower us. The Spirit never comes into your heart without the Son and the Father coming. That would be another religion. It would be tritheism. So we're baptized into this threefold name to go and baptize others into that same threefold yet singular name. So when Jesus promises at the end of the text, behold, I'm with you. I am with you, even to the end of the age. We know now this is not merely the isolated presence of the Son. Isolating Jesus from the Trinity is popular, but it isn't Christian. The presence of Jesus is always the presence of the Holy Trinity through Jesus, with or by Jesus. So this is a comforting thing, right? The church goes, the church is sustained until the end in the all-glorious, incomprehensible, present, near life of the triune God. Trinitarian exaltation leads to Trinitarian power and presence which leads to making Trinitarian disciples, placing them into the singular, incomparable name, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's just the fringe, beloved. Just the fringe of the fringe. Glory be to this God, our God, your God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.